Welcome to episode five of Unraveling Pink, a podcast exploring gender-based assumptions or pink bandanas at work. I'm Annie Rogaski. In this episode, we hear from our first male guest, Chris Rogaski. Chris shares his perspectives as a male ally who has attended women's conferences, has helped identify and call out unconscious bias, and shares his thoughts on how we can get to better equality in the workplace. In his view, it comes down to logic, return on investment, and people generally being good and wanting to do the right thing. It was fun to talk with a man about gender issues. It's different and in some ways more challenging than having a conversation in this space with women. Perhaps that's my own blue bandana moment, similar to the blue bandana moment that Joanna Bloor shared in episode two, I found myself approaching this conversation differently and more cautiously than those I have with women. And that's a good reminder for me that these conversations between men and women about potentially charged gender topics are tough and we need good tools to help us tackle them. Chris offers a really good way to approach difficult conversations like these, a way that takes them out of the personal and into more objective observations. Before we get to this interview, I wanted to touch on a couple things. First, you may recall the effort in the Senate to stop Elizabeth Warren from reading Coretta Scott King's letter on the Senate floor. Regardless of the politics or the Senate rules, I was struck by the language used and the gender impact I felt. When I heard, quote, she was warned, she was given an explanation, nevertheless, she persisted, unquote, it struck me as condescending and I had a visceral reaction to the concept of a man shushing a woman. Then I thought about how would this sound if she was replaced with he? He was warned. He was given an explanation. Nevertheless, he persisted. With just that pronoun change, it sounded to me like he persisted through hardship, that he was almost a hero, that his persistence was a good thing. It made me think of how the same terms used for men and women can sometimes give a different impression, like the words aggressive or ambitious. What do those mean for men or for women in the workplace? Perhaps this quote just brought up my own unconscious bias, but I'd be curious to know how others heard it. Some unraveling pink faves for the week. Number one, Kamala Harris, who is a junior senator from California, fighting for equality and justice and not afraid to speak up. And number two, Judge Michelle Friedland of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, who took control of the appellate argument on the executive order on immigration and was relentless in pushing for answers on constitutional limits on power. These limits impact not only immigration, but our ability to protect equality and justice on all fronts, including gender equality. So it's reassuring to hear the emphasis on our constitutional protections. And now, my conversation with Chris. Welcome to Unraveling Pink, a podcast that explores gender-based assumptions or pink bandanas at work. I'm Annie Rogaski, and I am sitting here today with Chris Rogaski. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So years ago, you attended a launch party for the club, which is a women's organization for women's leadership. I did. Uh, did anything in that event surprise you or did you learn anything about 
women in the workplace at that event? I wouldn't say I was surprised. I've been really following along with women in the workplace much earlier than the club event. So it wasn't like my eyes were being opened to anything that I hadn't thought about or hadn't seen before. So I wasn't, there was nothing along those lines. Uh, I'm always impressed and enthused and I I, I get caught up in the um, communality that happens whenever these events happen. Uh, It's very interesting to um, see people coming together around a common goal and how it's all shared and how they quickly bond and become much more of a community than, you know, just individual people trying to tackle an issue or trying to come up with solutions or things like that. So I think that was the thing that always captures my attention at these uh, uh, when I go to an event, especially for women-oriented things. When I went to Grace Hopper, I felt the same thing. So it's a good thing. So you've been to a few women-focused events or, or conferences. Yes. And presumably you were the the gender minority in those rooms. I was. I had to stand in line for the men's bathroom with a bunch of women. And how did that feel? I was fine with it. It The part that made me uneasy was that I could possibly be making people around me uneasy. And that's never a good feeling for me, at least. With our society and the separation of bathrooms and all the gender separation along those lines, um, you know, I, I didn't want to make anyone feel uneasy. But I really had to go, so... <laughs> Was there anything other than congeniality or bonding that you saw at the Grace Hopper conference? What, what did you come away from that? With? Purity of purpose. You know, when you go to these things, contrasted with a normal conference where, let's like, say, it's, you know, like uh, my previous life, a conference, conference in atmospheric sciences, you know, people go there to present their work and their findings and to have discussions around that. But they don't really come out with a sense of purpose, a communal purpose. Um, going to these events, for you know, women specifically, it, it, you get a communal purpose that comes out of it, and that's a that's a huge thing. That's a that's a that's a powerful that's a that's a powerful force, and it's it's great to um, to be part of it and observe it, and to have a perspective on it from different from other people's perspectives, and and so yeah, I, I, that's one of the things I really enjoy about going to women specific conferences is that it generally comes out with a sense of com- a communal purpose around what they're trying to achieve, like some sort of plan of action that they're going to put into place. All sorts of things, plan of action. Uh, uh, rededication to what they want to do, empowerment, not feeling like they're outsiders, like there's a bunch of people who feel the exact same way they do. And so that that kind of empowers their feelings and makes them realize that, you know what, they're, they're, they're not alone. It's always good when you have people to help. So when you've left those types of conferences, have you come away with a shared communal purpose with the, the women who attended? Yes, but it's a, it's a different perspective, right? But my perspective I come out of is, okay, how can I help? What are the things I need to do in order to make sure that I, you know, that I keep the purpose that they're, that people are, are striving for? And how do I make sure that they get there? How do I, how can I help? What can I do to add in and be an additive effect to this? How do I get them to recognize that I'm, I'm, I can help. So a couple things, a couple questions I had from that. One, you, you expressed that you might not have the same takeaways as women in a conference, like asking for what you want. Is that because, or, or did you recognize there that maybe women have some different issues in the workplace than, than men do? No, no, this, is, this has, has nothing to do with that. It's just my own personal um, creed and philosophy of how I purport myself through society. Um, I don't think I'm any better than anybody on this planet. I don't think I'm any worse than anybody on this planet. So 
I see other human beings and other human beings in my experience, human beings are basically good. And so I, I you know, asking for things and um, doing things and just being, you know, a human being has never been something that's been an impediment to me. Um, so from that perspective, you know, I, my, my comment was based more along that lines of, of a personal bent that I have. However, with that said, I do learn all sorts of things that from, you know, these conferences about what people see as holding them back. And from my perspective and being, you know, having managed a large amount of people um, throughout my career, you know, I can, I can definitely use that information to inform how I, you know, proceed forward and, and how do I make myself a better manager? How, how do I run an organization in a much, much better and more complete manner? Are there things from a management standpoint that you approach differently if you are managing a man or a woman? Or is it such an individual thing that really you just get to know the people that you're managing? I was, you know, I don't think this is black. I don't believe in the black and white to this. Um, so if I were to say 100% treat everybody the same, I think that'd be a lie. And if I said that I 100% treat them based on their gender, that'd be a lie as well. I, I get to learn the person. And I also recognize, you know, I, from learning from the conferences, you know, if like from dealing with a woman, I look for telltale signs that possibly she might be afraid to challenge herself and take on a role that might be more than she thinks she can handle, for example. And with a guy, it could be is also that he could be trying to, you know, take on a role that he's going to be putting himself into a position of failure. And then, you know, I have to, you know, it's, so it's, it's different in that regards, but in general, it's just the person itself that I'm, I'm looking out for and making sure that I understand where they want to go and how do I help them get there. So you've talked a couple of times about helping and how do you help women or other people that you are managing get to their goals. Are there particular things that you've found are useful in helping women as a manager of women? Yeah, there are a couple things and, you know, that made me reiterate that I always look to the person. So every person's different. I don't believe all women are the same and every person's their own special being. So uh, let's don't lose sight of that fact. But, you know, there are there are things I, I do with women. Um, I listen a lot more, much more of an active listening mode. With men, the conversation goes a little bit differently. It's a bit more direct and some, you know, it depends upon the individual. But, uh, you know, I'm looking for generalities here. So, yeah, I, I, with women, I tend to listen a lot more because in listening, they're saying a lot of things and they're also doing a lot of processing too. It seems, you know, sometimes it seems like, and this applies to anybody, this isn't just women, men, men, I've done some with men as well. But if you get them to vocalize out loud what they want or what they are, where they're, tr where they're trying to go or what they're tr trying to attempt to do, that really helps them get a kind of a different perspective of what, instead of being in their head, is now out, out there and it's something, an object can be discussed and poked and prodded and smoothed and roughed. However, whatever needs to be done. And so I, I, I tend to do that more, a little bit more with women, my discussions. And then it's it's about um, giving ideas and giving a, a, a contrary thoughts and seeing what they think about it. You generally, the employee will get to the right spot uh, on their own if you if you just listen and encourage and, and get them to think uh, constructively about where they're trying to go. It's you know, a lot of it's just simplification. If you can simplify things, it's getting to where you want to go is much easier. In our episode two, mm which one of my I'm favorites. sure you heard. One of my favorites. With Joanna Bloor. Yes. She talked about the fact that she and a lot of women, not all women, and generally we say on this podcast that <sighs> these are all generalizations and it doesn't apply 100%, yep. that she and other women tend to talk more, as you were saying, as they talk through, they sort of talk through their thought process. 
for some men that can be frustrating because it's not typically, as you mentioned, men tend to be somewhat more direct in their communication. And so that can be a hard thing. But what you focused on was interesting to me because it was seeing the benefit in that talking through and that you can see some hooks or you can push in one direction or another to have him or her think through a different angle or a contrary view. And it sounds sounds like that's a useful way to get to a better result. Yeah, it's rewarding not only for the person who's doing the, the thinking out loud, but it's rewarding for you as a listener because, you know, I was very fortunate to work with a lot of really smart people. And so if you listen, you, you can learn some stuff that help you along the way as well. And that is always very cool. That's why I always look forward to my one-on-one conversations with employees is because it's it opened a, a new perspective for me to have and to learn from and to you know consume and be able to use in the future. Lately, there's been a lot of discussion about how to be an ally. From the male perspective, are there things that you have found to be challenging or helpful in being an ally to women? Um, no, I haven't found anything challenging about it at all. I found it to be very helpful because, again, it's a different perspective, and I always enjoy having as many perspectives as possible on a situation. Um, now, there's got to be an evolution to the process. Everything starts at a small point, and then, you know, if it's going to be something that's got legs, it's got to move into a different it's got, to, it's got to grow. It's got to change. It's got to evolve. It's got to become bigger, better, stronger, more inclusive. And so that's where, you know, the next step is, okay, great. We've, we've called out in the, in the women's community, but how do we get that in the general community, which is the community that everybody lives in? And that's, the, that's, that's where the evolution has to come from. And so I've always been very, um, you know, great. Let's, it's a problem. Let's discuss it, but let's invite everybody. Let's, you know, let's not just say we're only going to have women at this. this is a women's event, so only women can come, and we'll, we'll invite these men speakers. No, that's not. That's the, you know, the, usually the men speakers you invite are the ones that are already aware it's a problem and are trying to help and solve it. My last job, uh, we had a very strong um, women's group. I volunteered and, and did a lot of work with them, and I kept noticing that only men that were ever at these events were the, the guys who were helping. Yeah, it, which is fine, but. You're not reaching much of an audience that way. You're you're kind of preaching to the choir at that point. So uh, you know, uh, it'd be it'd be great to start seeing this evolve into okay. How do we as a society get this to where it should be, which is equal pay for equal work or equal opportunities for equal sense of set of potentials. That's a really good point. Of we need to reach more people. How do we reach the men who aren't already on board? What what concrete suggestions would you have for how do we go about that? What problem are we trying to solve is the first thing because there's a lot of issues that are, are kind of interwoven here. I don't think you're going to solve all of them with all the people all the time. So I think it's something that it's, it's the way you develop anything is you start with a simple thing that you want to solve, solve it, learn from it, learn from your mistakes, learn from your positives, and then move forward to then scale it out to the next level. So to try to solve all of, you know, the, the glass ceiling, the lack of opportunities, the, you know, the 85 cents per dollar, or is it 79 cents? The, you know, the lack of diversity, you can't solve all that all at once. However, if we solve, say, the diversity problem and get a much more diverse distribution of, you know, the workforce, then some of these other problems will start solving themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I'm as, as a first as a first order guesstimate on my part. That is going to have to be you insist is take this tackle diversity. That's a two way street. You're going to have to get people applying for it, but you're also going to have to have to get the decision makers making decisions in a 
unbiased manner. And that bias could be unconscious or it could be a conscious bias. The unconscious bias is going to be something that is just training that's going to have to take care of the unconscious bias. Everyone has an unconscious bias regardless of, of their gender. Um, the conscious bias that has to be that has to be eradicated systematic systemic systemically that can't be allowed. There has to be some repercussions to um, enforcing a conscious bias based on some simple silly thing as like gender uh, or their height or so, you know unless of course they're basketball players but whatever. Um, <laughs> but no, that 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 has to be the conscious has to be eradicated. The subconscious has to be educated, and the value will come because uh, a more diverse workforce has been shown many many times over to be. Uh, much more uh, better ROI than a less diverse workforce. It'll take time, but that's how you'll get to where things are. Now, with that said, there's going to be some natural things that people are going to have to understand as well, um, how things self-select um, both on for both genders. And so there might not, you know, 50-50 might not be the natural, you know, uh, mixture point. Uh, some, some things could be 60-40 one way or the other, or it could be 70-30 one way or the other. But you know, we have to make sure we keep a line on that and we don't force things into unnatural states just because we want to have 50-50 everything. So you mentioned that our decision makers need to be aware of their biases and eradicate conscious bias and learn about and deal with unconscious or subconscious bias. Currently, a majority of our leaders in business, for example, are male. Mm -hmm. And so this issue of diversity and inclusion driving a higher return on investment is not new. It's been around for quite some time, mm -hmm. but we're not seeing change really quickly. Mm -hmm. Is there something that you see going on that there's some disconnect between that, that data, that there is a, a better return on investment if you have a more diverse workforce and the fact that we're not seeing really strong change in our workforces yet, mm. uh, particularly at the upper levels. Is this just a matter of time, do you think? Or do you think there are other things at play that need to be dealt with before we can get there? Uh, it's, in my opinion, it's multiple factors. Uh, one, it takes time. You, you just can't create a new set of CEOs out of nothing. There has to be learning. There has to be people who've got the skill sets and who have the experience you just, you just don't. You just can't randomly pick somebody to be a CEO of a company. So that'll take time, and it's, it's it's better to get working on that and now and getting it going because that effect will should appear ten years from now. It's just wait. I mean, you look at the minimum experience what you need for CEOs. Let's say we started this back in two thousand ten. Let's say women, you know, young women at that time, it'd be fifteen years. So two thousand twenty-five, roughly, I'd expect to see you know. Uh, effect of this type of work and ongoing too is you're not going to stop doing it the second thing is you're going to need the people who have conscious bias who don't for some reason who do use gender to make decisions they need to age out or be removed they they have to you know get themselves out of the uh way and that's going to take time too so in, re in your question is is it validate oh no it doesn't it's just simple logic i mean look at this way if you were to say that you wanted to have the top 10 percent of the population so say a population 100, that means the, you know, one through 10, you want them to be your work. But let's say you, you know, you only, you, you know, you're biased and you take, you, you only want the top 10% of the males. And let's say, as we know that five of the, of the 10 of the top percent of the population are female. Well, you're now going to be dealing with lesser workers mm -hmm. because you're going to be going into, you know, workers in the tens and twenties. 
uh, because you're chosen to uh, to pick males only. In which case, your investment's not going to be as return on investment's not going to be as good in a simple instance because the workers aren't going to be as good. You know, from that perspective, I, I logic just basic logic is, is dictates that, that this, this is the case. So that seems to point to recruitment processes, though, because if you like looking at startups, for example, if you have a startup started by two men who went to college together and they have a certain network and they start growing the company, their growth, if they leverage their networks to grow their company, their company's diversity will be limited by their network's diversity. Like unless someone intentionally goes outside of their network to seek out a more diverse workforce, there's some sort of self-selection that happens just by the fact that their network is whatever it is. Now, maybe it's a diverse network, but if it's not, then you are not having leaders of companies looking for the top 10% of qualified workers. They're looking at the top 10% of qualified workers in their network, which could be unnaturally white or male, for example. I, I understand the premise. I don't know how prevalent that actually is, um, mainly because I, I, I don't study this, but if my intuition would tell me that if it is a startup that actually receives some funding, the generally the investors um, extend their networks to get bring in the best people, and those networks will tend to have um, women in them uh, for sure um, because investors tend to invest in ROI and they don't really get too gender based. There are ex- ex- there's counterexamples to this as well. So again, I, I'm speaking in general generalities. Yeah, I, I understand what that is. Um, but then you're, you know, you're gonna, you know, it, that that's just reality, right? That's just how networks, you know, your personal networks work with the networking with the um, social graphs that people have been putting together. You've been noticing a lot more, um, not, not enough, don't get me wrong, but you know, women taking high profile CEO positions like Meg Whitman, for example, and you know, in 1999, uh, was brought in to run eBay, uh, not in Pierre Omidyar's network. Uh, and so, you know, there's, there's a singular example and by no means is that set a trend, but there's other, you know, there's other women as well. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of out of network women hires, um, not nearly enough, but it's enough to know that the smart people understand yeah. the value. So. And certainly there are people who, like Mark Benioff, who see diversity, both gender-based and racial-based diversity is an important I, the, the investor thing I, I would disagree with a little bit because i think that what we've seen at least in the vc space in silicon valley is that the vcs are largely male and if they're drawing upon their networks it's not to say that every single one of them has disproportionately male networks but i think that that probably is likely and that that's another space where we don't have enough women. So relying on their networks, I'm not sure gets us there. But I think your point on the out-of-network, the need to, to recruit out-of-network is important. And there are a lot more companies that are offering those kinds of services. So if you can identify, for example, an unconscious bias that your network doesn't have enough diversity in it, there are ways of, of reaching out and recruiting more diverse people into your company. Are there any personal examples that you either experienced or witnessed involving 
a gender-based assumption, either about men or about women, that you would be willing to share with us? I've been in, uh, you know, calibration sessions with other managers and words that described men as positive or negative for, for women. And that didn't sit well with me. And that's something I, you know, I, I, I wasn't very popular in, in, in refuting and in calling you know, various people to task on. Um, but yeah, I, I've observed that and that's just, it's, it shouldn't happen. And that's the type of conscious, unconscious bias that needs, you know, we need to work on. We need to, um, you know, to remove this, you know, it's not like, you know, that, that riddle about the, the doctor's son and, <laughs> you know, that, that should never be a riddle. That should just be a 50-50 guess, right? So from that perspective, yeah, I have observed that. And for the most part, it was all unconscious bias because when, you know, to the credit of the people who brought it up and when they're confronted with, you know, not in a militaristic way, I can, I confronted them with, you know, their bias, they hadn't realized it and they weren't doing it on purpose. And so that gave them a fresh perspective and difficult conversations end up paying off in spades down the run because they stopped using that language. And we started seeing much better discourse about actual performances as opposed to perceptions of performances. And so, you know, it's, it just takes time. Uh, you know, you, you, these things don't, you know, societal issues don't disappear in, uh, you know, a year or two years or five years. It, it takes, it takes a generation to go through. Um, it takes generations, you know, new generations coming in with the right ideas and the old generations, with the, you know, with the wrong ideas moving out. So it's just going to take time. So one of the things I like to, to ask people is, is a, practically how to raise issues in the workplace. And you just talked about the fact that you were able to bring to light certain unconscious biases of other people in your calibration sessions. For those who want to call that out, but don't quite know how to go about it, I know you're a very direct person, so I suspect you just came out with it, but is there something that you would suggest for people who want to call something like that out without, for example, putting themselves at risk? There's another way to look at it is if you don't say anything, is it going to get better? No, it's just going to keep going. And it, it actually tends to steamroll because then no one refutes anything and no one composes something. It just gains credence. There are ways of which you can push back without putting yourself in the firing line. And that's all about, it's all about how you, you interact with people. And the simplest way is, is to treat it as an object. I observed is a great way of tr- turning something that's bothering you into an object that everyone else can discuss. So instead of saying you did this or you did that. I observed that you said he was a go-getter and always was pushing for things and then turned around and you then said that she was pushy and she was trying, you know, as a negative. So it can't be, you know, my observation is that that you're using one as positive, one as negative, when they're the same thing. We're not actually uh, doing our job properly. We're actually introducing bias into our job and we're not actually doing a, a calibration at all. What we could do is we start treating everybody the same. I'd love to hear your opinion on that. my observation. Again, my observation, the observation's on the table and everyone can poke prod, run their hands over it, ignore it, stoke it, whatever, whatever makes them happy. So the key thing though is, you know, you have to put it out on the table. If, if you stay silent, you're just tacitly approving it. So you don't want to do that. So you're calling it out so people are aware of it and can share their perspective on it. But by making it more of an object as opposed to a personal directional comment, then you it sounds like you empower people in the room to add their perspective and start a conversation around it. Yeah. 
it's a it's a very e way to do things. I'm an e, so I'm allowed to do that. <laughs> uh, and uh, you know, e for extrovert. Yes, yes, <laughs> e, for, e for extrovert. Excellent extrovert. <laughs> people always ask me how do you get people to use data. You know, I say, well, you make it part of their job. You know, it's got to become part of their day to day existence. It's the same thing here. Is um, how do you get rid of unconscious bias? You talk about it whenever they arise. You know, you don't have to have a full out drag down of war. You don't even have to have a full on discussion, especially if you've gotten the habit of being able to notice these things. And generally, in my experience, with the people I work with, granted, this is just a small subset of everybody who's worked in, you know, in the valley, let alone the world. They want to do the right thing. They don't, they don't want to have this. So you're helping them as well as helping yourself and helping the people that you're supposed to be um, trying to help out. So that's a win, 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 win situation. I like it. I like to end this podcast with a challenge. So is uh, there something that you personally uh, are willing to commit to doing that would reduce the number of pink bandana moments in the workplace that you will challenge our listeners to join you in doing? So a challenge I started, but it never got a chance to finish because I left the company is to remove names from resumes. Get rid of the names. You don't need the names when you review your resume. If you want to figure out who you want to uh, contact for a further um, conversation about the position. Second challenge I'd say is, you know, uh, challenge your recruiters to do the same. If your recruiters give you 10 resumes that are all male, their recruiters are actually doing you a disservice. So my challenge for anybody who's listening to this and who's, who has to hire people is, A, try to get as diverse set of, of resumes as possible, and B, remove the names. It's a great challenge. So with that, we'll close out. Thank you, Chris, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure as well. Thank you for having me.